Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Leviticus this morning. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 14, and then make our way all the way to Leviticus 6, verse 7. So chapter 5, verse 14 to 6, verse 7. I, I really should start keeping count on how many weeks this has been, but I always fail to do so. It always ends up being about a year into the book, and I think, when did we start that? And I have to go look through the bulletins, but... I've enjoyed this time so far in the book of Leviticus, and I hope you have as well. Um, And by enjoy, I mean I've been so challenged by the Word of God. Um, Chapter 5, verse 14, we'll read again to chapter 6, verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks. With your valuation and shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, as a trespass offering. And he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing, and shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. If a person sins and commits any of these things, which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity, And he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance, in which he erred and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge, or about a robbery, or if he is extorted from his neighbor, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely, in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted, or what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things, that he may have done in which he trespasses. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, Lord, we offer you this time. Uh, it is yours. We belong to you. This time belongs to you. All time belongs to you. Everything you created ultimately belongs to you. Father, we pray that you would grant us grace to hear and understand. The Holy Spirit would impress upon our hearts the truths contained in your Holy Word, and that we might be transformed through the hearing in order to be more faithful in the doing. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, the text this morning that I just read actually reminds me of a story about Jameis Winston. For those of you who aren't familiar with Jameis Winston, he played for the 10th best university in the state of Florida, at least top five on the panhandle. Um, I'd say the name of that university, but I'm convinced if I ever mentioned the name of that university from this pulpit, I would burst into flames. Um, So anyways, he played for the Slytherin Voldemorts, uh, and he was 
pretty good, I suppose. He had, a, he had one year, though, where he had a bit of a sketchy reputation. And this story from that year was my absolute favorite. The story goes like this. In fact, I'll quote one article. Jameis Winston's embarrassing offseason just got a little more embarrassing today when TMZ obtained a copy of a 2013 phone call to the police from a Burger King employee claiming Winston was stealing from the soda fountain. The assistant manager at a Burger King just off Florida State's campus is very upset during the call and asks for a police officer to come right away. The best part? Winston and his friends were drinking from ketchup cups. Yes, ketchup cups. Those little bitty cups for your ketchup. That's what the Heisman winning quarterback used to get his free sugar rush. Jameis Winston was stealing from the king. Burger King. But the king. And it was just a little bit of soda, but it was theft nonetheless. And and see, that's really what our passage is about today. Israel was guilty of stealing something from the king, not Burger King, but the holy king of the universe. And not just soda, but something far more significant. That's our big idea for the morning. It's this, stealing from the king creates a debt that must be paid. Stealing from the king creates a debt that must be paid. I want to give you some introductory thoughts before we kind of walk into this. There's a couple things that I really think will be helpful here for our understanding. Things I kind of want to address beforehand. Um, The first is this. There's a reason why in your text it says trespass offering. But I'm actually going to be referring to this as the reparation offering. Uh, The name, the reparation offering. Um, So you see trespass, I'm going to use reparation, here's why. It's it's an offering that's meant to make amends to an offended party or to make restitution to repair a relationship. It has the idea of paying a cost or debt that has been incurred because of some sort of offense. And so the reason I bring this up is because, uh, if, if you remember, atonement is common to all the sacrifices that we've looked at so far. Specifically, the burnt offering, the purification offering, and the reparation offering. But where they get their names is what actually distinguishes and differentiates them. They all deal with sin and guilt, but they provide different ways of thinking about sin. The burnt offering focuses on reconciliation accomplished through a whole life substitutionary sacrifice. Remember, the purification offering just focuses on purifying that which has become dirty. The reparation offering focuses on repaying the debt that has been accrued because of sin. So as one commentator points out, he says, The burnt offering uses a personal picture of man, the guilty sinner who deserves to die for his sin, and of the animal lying in his place. God accepts the animal as a ransom for man. The sin offering uses a medical model. Sin makes the world so dirty that God can no longer dwell there. The blood of the animal disinfects the sanctuary in order that God may continue to be present with his people. The reparation offering presents a commercial picture of sin. Sin is a debt which man incurs against God, and the debt is paid through the offered animal. 
The second thing I want to point out is, is that there are subtle differences between the reparation offering and the purification offering. Okay? I want to look at these very carefully. If you took time to read the passages, which I hope you did at some point this week, you at least thought to yourself at some point between the first seven chapters of Leviticus, what's the difference here? Well, there are subtle differences that are given in each of these offerings. The, the first is in the ritual itself. The, the bloodletting ceremony is slightly different. The, the blood from the purification offering, it was smeared on the horns of the altar, symbolizing the purification, the cleansing of the palace tent that took place. Whereas the reparation offering takes the blood and tosses it on the sides of the altar, similar to the burnt offering. It's, it's more of a picture of this blood belongs to the Lord and we're giving it to Him. Furthermore, unlike the purification offering, there was only, only one option for the sacrificial offerings. We looked at several options for the purification offering last week. Remember, if you don't have money for a bull or goat, you can bring two turtle doves and two pigeons. If you don't have that, you can bring grain, flour, right? Fine flour without the frankincense and, and the added oil. Exactly. We looked at several options for that last week, but that's not the case with the reparation offering. There's only one option. And one option only, and it was a costly sacrifice. In addition, the situations requiring a reparation offering are different. Remember, the, the purification offering is required to remedy various types of unintentional sin. But the reparation offering is much more specific. Our text goes on to give three examples, and they all involve misusing something that is holy. So, so something that's been set apart for the Lord. And then finally, the last subtle difference between the two is the purpose. The purpose differentiates the two. In the purification offering, the purpose was to purify. Specifically, the Lord's palace tent. Whereas the reparation offering served to repay the debt caused by stealing from the Holy, Lord, Holy King, the Lord. Okay, so those are just introductory thoughts. Wrap your heads around that. I know there's a lot of different offerings and sacrifices. They can all run together, but there are subtle differences, and they're important. Let's go to the text itself now. In our passage, what we're going to see are three acts of unfaithfulness that require a reparation offering. Three acts of unfaithfulness that require a reparation offering. The first is found in chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. It is inadvertently profaning a holy thing. That's the scenario or situation. Inadvertently profaning a holy thing. So here's what this means. Someone has inadvertently profaned something holy. Once again, what do we see about this offense? It was unintentional. So, so something was taken or used without forethought or premeditation. And yet, as we considered last week, the person is still guilty. They bear the consequence for their iniquity. The sinner is described as unfaithful. Now, mind you, that's very strong language. I want you to hear that. It's used elsewhere, that, that term unfaithful, to describe an adulteress. Or, or someone who worshipped different gods. Someone who's turned away from the Lord and rebelled against Him. This is not you forgot to do your chores. It's not that kind of unfaithfulness. This is, you've been caught in adultery. You've been unfaithful. And notice, this is how serious the sin is to the Lord. It's unintentional, but it does not mean it's not serious. 
So the sinner was unfaithful in the holy things of the Lord. Holy things refers to those items that were set apart for the Lord. Those various things in the palace tent, all those items that we mentioned, they were holy. You had the holy place and the holy of holies. Even the outer court was a holy place where the sacrifices would be eaten. But you also had the utensils used to handle the sacrifices. Those things in themselves were to be set apart, not to be used for common everyday purposes. So you were not allowed to stoke the fire of the altar with the utensil you used to stoke your local campfire. The vessel used to catch the blood was not also to be used to get water from the local stream. Why would you use that vessel? I have no idea, but you were not to. It was holy. And then listen, even the various food items were holy. Those parts of the purification offering that are not burnt, remember, they're given to the priest to be eaten because they're holy. Okay, so so what's the scenario here? Like, give me an example. Well, it doesn't say exactly, but I would imagine it could be that somebody grabbed the wrong bowl and put something in it that it didn't belong. It it could very likely be someone came with a a peace offering, and, and when he came to gather up his portion that he was to feast on with his friends and family, he accidentally grabbed a piece of the purification offering that belonged to the Lord, and Or he grabbed somebody else's peace offering that belonged to the Lord. He sat around the table and beginning to enjoy his peace offering meal. And all of a sudden he realizes there are five legs here instead of four. And it's not like when you go to McDonald's and you're like, they gave me seven chicken nuggets. That's great. No, he's like, oh no, I've done something wrong. And then that's a problem. One too many legs. It was unintentional, but he realizes he's taken something that is holy. The recompense for something like that would be a reparation offering. A ram was to be offered. And the costliness of the animal underscored the severity of this offense. It was a serious offense to take something that was set apart for the Lord. So the lamb was to be without blemish. It was of certain value. The values, according to the sanctuary shekel, but before offering the ram, we see in our text that the sinner had to make restitution. The sinner was not only unfaithful in the holy things of the Lord, but the sinner had to make restitution. Verse 16 starts out by saying, and he shall make restitution. So let's go back to the example. For example, in the case of the holy food item, this would involve replacing it. So he would replace the extra leg he had taken, plus the Bible says 20%. Plus another portion of leg or some other part of the animal. But, but what's interesting is that might seem like a lot, but it's, it's actually fairly very small compensation. In fact, if you know Exodus chapter 22, if a thief was caught stealing, the requirement would be for him to replace what was stolen plus 200 to 500% of what you stole. So one leg plus another two to five legs. The fact that it was so low in case of a reparation offering was probably because it was indeed unintentional. The instance in Exodus 22 is someone is caught, brought in front of a jury. The Lord found him to be guilty. And so after restitution was made, the priest makes atonement with the ram and the person's forgiven. That's the situation in verses 14 through 16. In verses 17 through 19, though, it it may not appear so. We, We actually, however, find pretty much the exact same scenario, except the person doesn't actually know what they did at all. So, 
The second situation is they unknowingly profane a holy thing. They not only inadvertently, but they unknowingly profane a holy thing. This, this is interesting. This got me this week. Uh, look at verse 17 of uh, chapter 5 with me. It says, If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he's guilty and shall bear his iniquity. The picture is of a sinner who suspects they have misused a holy item, but isn't sure exactly what. Uh, The Israelites in general were aware of the danger of committing sin unknowingly and unintentionally. In Psalm 19, for instance, David expresses this very well in verse 12. He says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. From those sins I do not even know or see. Israel understood that knowledge of one's sin was not necessary for someone to be guilty of their sin. We saw that last week. And so Israel was fearful of inadvertently committing sins that remained unknown. So the Lord gave them a way to deal with their sins that were unknown to the sinner. Verse 17 through 19 addresses this. The fact the sin remains unknown is why... You'll find no restitution prescribed in these verses because you can't make restitution if you don't exactly know what it is you've taken. But this leads to another question, right? So as I thought about this this week, I think about how scatterbrained I can be and probably just should say I am at this point, right? And how often I ask myself what I did yesterday, right? Did I, did I send the message to this person or did I call so-and-so? Did I get this thing particular done? And how if I was in this scenario, that would just be my life, right? Like, did I I touch that bowl then first? And then did I make sure that I put that in this particular situation? If it were me, I would feel like I would always be making these reparation offerings. And so the question I have is if they weren't sure what they did, what is it actually that would cause them to suspect they had done something wrong in the first place? And here's the answer. It wasn't just because anxiety and fear over and over again. Simply put, the answer, hear this, is most likely because of misfortune. So, follow me here. Something bad happened. A sickness. A failed crop. Business turned south. Therefore, they suspected, maybe I've sinned unknowingly against the Lord. They they must be suffering guilt's consequences. In fact, Scholar, a commentator, argues that verses 17b through 18a are best translated like this. And he does not know what he has done, but he suffers guilt's consequences and bears his punishment. Then he will bring to the priest a reparation offering, a ram from the flock. Scholar writes on this, he says, In short, the person has sinned, but is unaware of what the sin is. The sinner therefore assumes the worst, the profaning of a holy item, and brings the costly reparation offering for atonement and forgiveness. Now, I was sharing this this week with someone very close with me. The question was raised, I, I don't have a hook for that. Like, I, I don't have a place for that because that sounds an awful lot like if something bad happens to me, then I need to suspect immediately that it's because of sin. But I'm I'm pretty sure that's not theologically correct. So how are we to make sense of this if that's the case? Well, 
I'll say this probably a billion times to the Old Testament, but hear it again. We must understand first and foremost that Israel was a school, a microcosm of humanity. God taught Israel very specific lessons that we all learn from through these types and shadows, this system of sacrifice and from his law. They knew, therefore, that every aspect of their life was connected to their sovereign God. They did not compartmentalize their life into the spiritual realm, the natural realm, and the emotional realm. My work life over here, my church life over here. All of life was under the rule of King Yahweh. Everything that happened had something to do with or reflected in some way God's interaction with them. So, so first we just have to put that into context here, okay? That they realized that when crops failed, when sickness struck, when misfortunes came, that sin was a possible cause. Ultimately, we know all sickness, all famine, and all poverty are rooted in sin. Now, now just because they had a reparation offering to offer when calamity struck, doesn't mean that it was actually personal sin that brought about the consequences. But a reparation offering was a way to help them to know. Right? If they offered a reparation offering and a sickness continued, well, at least I know it wasn't my sin against the Lord. Yet that was at least one of the lights that would come on when something bad happened. And I, like, I don't think we get this, and I understand it. Right? We, we don't have a box for that. We're thinking right now, how do, I, how do I take that and apply this to the New Covenant age? But I think there's a great danger here to just throw this completely out. Because I think there's a lesson for us to learn here regarding sin and its consequences. See, the reality is we we often look to doctors for the source of our illness and sickness. We often look to scientists to explain crop failures and economic advisors to see why the economy is failing. We rarely think of sin as the cause and especially never consider that our own personal sin could actually be involved. Now, let let me go ahead and state this very clearly because it's very important. So, So hear this part. We who are in Christ do not suffer the consequences of guilt that have been removed from us by the blood of Christ, right? Our entire debt has been paid, hallelujah, amen. Amen. But the Lord does discipline those he loves. There is nothing wrong with pausing and considering if maybe sin has entered my life and is causing me to experience the discipline of the Lord. And and actually, let me be even more to the point in regards to those of you who may be here this morning that are outside of Christ. Sin is always at the root of everything bad in our world. Ultimately, if, if, if it's not personal sin then it's still the underlying cause of all death, all brokenness, all destruction, and all failure in the lives of individuals and nations. Sin is at the root of that. Lastly, I'll say this. We too often compartmentalize our lives in a way that allows us to think that there's a natural explanation and a spiritual explanation, and those are not integrated in any way we find in Scripture. But that's just not the case. You can never tease apart the two so that you might fully explain something that has simply happened in natural terms without any reference to God. 
So while there's a danger in obviously thinking every time I get a flat on the way to work, which doesn't happen very much for me. Um, that's, a, that's a joke. I live at this parsonage. That's why that's a... It, it, while there's a danger in thinking that, that every time something bad happens to me, there must be sin in my life, there's also an equal danger for us to think that if something is falling apart in my life, there's no possible way it can be due to my personal sin because I'm in Christ. That's why we need a Q&A after service, right? Or even better, just ask your grow teachers to do a class on that. Unless you're in my grow class. No, we're not. <laughs> we're doing enough biblical counseling. Even so, profaning the Lord's holy name is the third situation we find. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we find profaning the Lord's holy name. So they inadvertently profaned a holy thing. They unknowingly profaned a holy thing. But in in chapter 3, they're profaning the Lord's holy name. The final reparation offering mentioned is for the misuse of the Lord's name and a false oath. The issue here, as it's described, you might have thought when you read this week, is just robbery or fraud or extortion, but it's not. Instead, it's misusing the Lord's name and swearing falsely. Oaths spoke by God were a common way to settle legal disputes in the ancient Near East especially if evidence was lacking. Well, in the same way, Israelites would make an oath by the Lord in certain occasions. The transgression that must be dealt with here in chapter 6 is making a false oath by the Lord's name. And here's the point. This is not one sin among many, but the major act of unfaithfulness against the Lord that actually called for the reparation offering. Remember the Lord's name. It's Yahweh. It was a personal, covenantal name God had given specifically to Israel. His name was not common. It wasn't to be thrown around. It was holy. It distinguished the true and living God from the other false gods that were really no gods at all. And so to swear falsely by the Lord was to take His holy name and use it as though it were a common thing. When someone misused His holy name to deceive people, To take something that did not belong to him. He or she, therefore, incurred the penalty of guilt. And once again, it's the same thing with the last one. What likely prompts the person to recognize their guilt is they would begin to suffer guilt's consequences. Something would happen. Their conscience would be pierced and they'd be convicted that he had sinned not only against his neighbor, but ultimately and more importantly against the Holy King. And so the law likely provided recourse for those who realized their guilt and confessed their sin. Sinners were to restore what they had stolen plus 20% and then bring a reparation offering that they may be atoned and receive forgiveness. This is what we find in our passage. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, first... Let's not go to what we learned. Let's go to what Israel learned. What are the lessons for Israel here? I'm not going to claim that we're going to cover each and every lesson that could possibly be learned. But I think there are three of the primary here. First and foremost, we'll go through these quickly. Number one, respect for the Lord's holy property shows respect for the holy king. Respect for the Lord's holy property shows respect for the holy king. Everything, again, ultimately belongs to the Lord. But the holy items in Israel belong to the Lord in a special way, just as Israel belonged to the Lord in a special way. These things were not to be treated as common, and it was not up to Israel to decide how to use these things. Doing so was to disregard the word of the Lord about the thing. 
In fact, people who make things, which many of you do, have that prerogative. Right? A person who creates a watch tells us what this is for. You put it on your wrist and use it to tell time. Or it connects to your smartphone for, for you millennials out there. I don't claim that. I'm a boomer at heart. Um, now, if I take that watch and try to use it as a hammer, breaking it to pieces, I show great disrespect and disregard for the maker of that watch, right? Well, to misuse a holy thing ultimately is to treat it with contempt. It amounted to taking something of very high value and using it like it was picked up from the local dollar store. It was essentially like taking the Lord's fine china and playing frisbee with it. This is why to misuse a holy item was a breach of faith. The Israelite who misused that which was deemed holy by the Lord was communicating by his actions that he or she didn't care what the Lord thought or said. That Israelite was breaking covenant, being unfaithful to love and revere the Lord. Now look, I get that I use our kids a lot for illustrations. But I mean, they're just so good at providing illustrations, right? We attempt to teach this. When our kids do something like, I don't know, just pulling out of the blue here, jump on the couch or draw on the walls or use mommy's makeup as part of an art project, they communicate to us that they really don't care about our property. But they also communicate a lack of love and respect for us and the law that we've given them. How Israel treated the Lord's property was a reflection, whether intentional or not, for a love for the Lord and faithfulness to Him. Second thing the Israelites would learn is that sin causes a debt that must be paid. We've seen that in our big idea already. We'll expand on that now. Sin causes a debt that must be paid specifically. We're going to look at this specifically and generally. Specifically, stealing something that belongs to the Lord would make the Israelites liable to debt. Stealing something that belongs to the Lord make the Israelites liable to debt. That makes sense, right? When you take something, you owe the person what you took. We see here in the case of the reparation offering, you owe what you took plus some. They're taking things that belong to the Lord that he had given to the priest. Therefore, the restitution or compensation goes to the priests themselves. But this law also taught the Israelites, not just specifically, but more generally about sin as well. Generally, all sin creates a debt. Every transgression of God's law deepened the deficit that man experienced in a relationship with God. Israel owed the Lord their allegiance, their faithfulness. It was His due. Israel had been redeemed from slavery from Egypt. They had made a covenant with the Lord. They belonged to Him. To disobey the Lord and forsake His commands was to withhold the proper payment. But not just Israel. Remember... All of humanity owes the Lord their allegiance. Israel knew that all people had been created by the Lord. From the very beginning, all people owe the Lord true worship. To withhold from the Lord, in the case of the example, the reparation offering creates a costly debt. That brings us to our third lesson. Our third lesson is reparation requires more than saying, I'm sorry. Reparation requires more than saying, I'm sorry, the costly debt must be paid. 
the Israelites learned from this law that they couldn't rob from the king's table and simply apologize when they began to experience the consequences of their guilt. The apology wouldn't cut it. The debt was real. This was not an imagined or theoretical debt. This was a real debt that had to be satisfied. And so compensation and a reparation offering were necessary. See, giving back what was taken was actually the starting point. I mean, that much was obvious. But the reparation offering taught the cost of true repentance was not and is not cheap. Okay, so if those are the three lessons for Israel that would have or should have learned through the reparation offering... What are the three lessons the church learns for the reparation offering? Here are the lessons for the church. The first, I guess, is probably more of a statement or matter of fact than it is a lesson we have applied to our lives, but it's important nonetheless. It's this. Jesus Christ never treated the Lord's things as common. He never showed contempt for God's property. The Lord Jesus Christ instead took what was common and made it holy. He took what was common and he made it holy. That's what we see in the life of Christ, right? His obedience, his constant and faithful worship, ultimately the death and resurrection that brought us into the family of God, that took that which was common and made it holy. And I I know I've mentioned this before, but it's fitting here as well. Ultimately, in Israel, what we have is that picture of the, the palace tent that the temple would later become in Israel. That is the place that is holy, that contains the holy of holies. Now remember, in the Old Covenant, God dwells in the midst of His holy people, separated from the rest of the nations. But now, people from every nation have actually become holy. We have become the temple of the Lord. Our lives and resources are now the holy items. Christ is our holy priest who makes us holy. Stones in that temple built together. Paul explains this perfectly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, when he says this, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows in a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Listen to me, Christian. The unrighteous have become righteous in Christ. The unholy have been made holy in that which used to apply to the temple, the items in the temple, and the priest is now applied to us. And and the reality of this, if we were to truly get this, would absolutely overwhelm us. Though vile and abhorrent, we have been made holy. We have been set apart for God's special use, just like the utensils and furniture in the tabernacle. We have obtained the status of holy without one single act of merit. We did nothing, accomplished nothing, and deserved nothing. I mean, don't forget this, by the way. We're Gentiles in here. We would have been doing well to be promoted to impure sojourner dwelling in the camp of Israel. But we were lost and without hope. We were Gentile dogs. And if you find that offensive, you don't understand your real predicament with Christ. Like you were an enemy of God. 
most high, destined for wrath and destruction. Then Jesus came, and those who were formerly the most unholy became holy. And, and get this, not just holy, not just like holy but unable to draw near, but holy as in God dwelling in you. Just let that sink in. Holiness is a great honor. And if we fail to grasp that, we're at risk of showing contempt. In fact, this truth should also inform our treatment of one another. Church family, the brother and sister sitting to your left and right, if they are in Christ, they're holy unto the Lord. Hear this. Brothers and sisters in Christ at other churches in our county are holy unto the Lord. Even many of those who misunderstand biblical truth are holy unto the Lord. Do not despise what belongs to the Lord, Christian. As Paul taught the Corinthians, each and every Christian is bought with a price. So they are not their own but belong to the Lord. They are holy. The second thing, I'm going to combine the second and third lesson that Israel learned here. second thing I want us to learn is that sin causes a debt that must be paid, and reparation requires more than saying I'm sorry. Those are just two lessons from Israel we just take straight out of their book because they're lessons for us as well. Our sin, no less than Israel, creates a real debt. All that we have belongs to the Lord. As Paul asked the Corinthians, what did you have that has not been given? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. We have nothing that we have not been given. It's all a gift from my creator. It is borrowed on loan. All people everywhere owe God everything. We all owe God our lives. But here's the problem. Hear me now. See if you've maybe heard this before. The problem is there is none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. See, we owe God our lives, but we're guilty of stealing our lives, squandering our gifts, and seeking our own glory. Therefore, the reality is that you and I have incurred a real debt that must be paid. We owe God a lifetime of obedience. Do you understand that? You and I owe God a lifetime of obedience. A lifetime of worship. And not one moment less than a full lifetime. So here's an application question for you. We deal with the reparation offering. We've got to ask this question. How will you repay God a lifetime of obedience plus some? How? Can you return to the womb? Would it do you any good if you could? (laughs) What about the plus some? After your lifetime of obedience, are you able to raise yourself from the grave to compensate for the additional debt your disobedience has created? How will you repay him a lifetime of worship? Can you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even for one moment, let alone a lifetime? 
Do you think being a good person by the world's standards makes your theft of obedience and worship owed to the Lord any better? Some of us certainly have at one time said this, and we've probably all heard it from the people we love. You know, I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. Listen, two things you need to always be remembering when you hear that. One, you're not as good as you think you are. Second, your neighbor's not the standard. Your foul-mouthed, drunken coworker is not the standard. The pervert on channel whatever news is not the standard. The far-left woke mob is not the standard. The Lord's holy character, as expressed in His perfect law, is the standard. So what hope do we have of paying so great a debt? None. For this reason, Paul once referred to us as without hope in the world. Because we were irreconcilably separated from the Lord. We were enemies of God and strangers to the promise of redemption. But when we really, get this, when we really understand our predicament, that we owe a real and significant debt to a holy God, then, and only then, are we ready to hear the gospel for the first time. You've never truly heard the gospel if you have never understood your debt. But when you glimpse the reality and enormity of this debt for the first time, when you really taste the despair that this crisis brings on, then you're ready to really appreciate how good this gospel is. The gospel is good news that God saves debtors like you and me. God the Father sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to pay our debt in full. He erased our account and satisfied the debt. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, offered up His perfectly obedient life on a cross. Listen carefully. Jesus, because He was man, was able to pay the debt that man owed. But Jesus, because He was God, offered a life that was valuable enough to pay the debt of the entire world. So Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid the debt, as Paul puts it in Colossians 2. And oh, just if you don't have these underlined, these are just wonderful verses to dwell on. Colossians 2, verses 13 to 14. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He is made alive together with Him having forgiven you of all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Church family, our debt has been canceled. Jesus Christ has paid it all in full. Now that's good news. But did you know it even gets better? He actually didn't just cancel the debt, but He filled our account by clothing us in His righteousness. So all of those who have trusted and will trust in Christ alone for their salvation have had His righteousness accredited to their account. That means that He didn't just, he didn't just pay your debt so you can have just a clean slate so you can try again. Let's, let's see how this righteousness goes for you. He did more than that. He cleared the debt and then He gave you 
the gift of his own righteousness. So that you can be seen as righteous. This is the gospel. And friends, there's never been a sweeter proclamation for somebody who really recognizes the vastness of their very own debt. So in conclusion, we've not simply taken a little bit of fountain soda and ketchup cups from Burger King. We've transgressed the perfect holy law of our king. And we have incurred a debt we cannot possibly pay in any thousand lifetimes. You have stolen the obedience and worship of your creator. But we have good news. Christ has paid the debt of all those who trust in him by his precious blood. So let us live holy lives that celebrate the gospel. And in the words of that old hymn we're about to sing. Praise God that Jesus paid it all. All to him I Would you stand with me as we close this morning? Gracious Father, we have have not just unintentionally taken a bit of a sacrifice, but our whole lives are bent towards pleasing ourselves. Our whole lives are bent towards taking that which belongs to you, to your honor and glory, And misusing it. Every good gift you have bestowed upon us. We have found a way to use it for evil. We owe more than we can ever give. And yet we find instead of a deficit. A credit to our account. That we cannot fathom. If we really understood that. If we really understood that. How could we not be moved to live lives that honor your holy name. Father, help us not to fear the debt we once owed. Father, help us so that we might better celebrate the debt we no longer owe. In Christ, our debt has been paid full. We thank you, we love you, and we pray for grace today to continue to worship you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We come to the time of our invitation, which is also the time of our close this morning. And twofold for the church, you know, I, I've probably been accused of this before, and it won't be the last time I've been accused of this, but um, we generally preach the same sermon around here quite a bit. Uh, I've been accused of preaching the same sermon, um, and that is that we're sinful, we need God's grace, He's given us His righteousness. Here's what I do with that, is... The, the moment we start really applying that in our day-to-day life is the moment I'll start preaching it. And I mean, that starts with me, right? Because I can, I can say that, but guess what? When I get home um, and I'm maybe tired or frustrated be- because of my own sin, and I begin to lash out at the people around me for what they're doing to impose on my kingdom, guess what I haven't gotten? I haven't gotten that I'm more sinful than I think I am. That Christ's grace is greater than I think it is. And just apply that. Just think about that. When you're at the grocery store and there's that lady in the, the, the 10 or less checkout line that has like 35 items. And you're just like, oh my goodness gracious. How in the world does she sleep at night, right? Remember, you're more sinful than you think. When we're on social media and we're scrolling about all the madness that's happening in our world. And we think... If people these days, if they were just more like me, 
So, again, when we start applying that, I'll stop preaching it. Okay? Just a, a loving reminder that, listen, this affects every instance in our life. It has to be seen under the lens of the gospel that you owe the Lord a lifetime of worship and obedience. So let's just, let's just start with a day. Like tomorrow, just, just see if you can give them a day of lifetime, of, a day of worship and obedience, full worship and obedience. And you'll just start doing the math there, how old you are and how many days there are in a year and how often you fail on that day. But don't stop there. Stop and recognize Christ paid for every bit of that. That I'm this sinful and my debt's not only canceled, but I've got a credit of righteousness. My debt's not only erased, but when God looks at me, he sees someone who is fully obedient and fully worships him, even though I don't because I've been covered by the blood of Christ. Okay, that... That makes me want to obey. That drives me to my knees in worship. And that's the point, friends. So let me just challenge you. Just think about the day. A day of worship and obedience. Don't be disheartened by how often you sin because you will be tempted. But celebrate the goodness of God's grace that He has truly paid it all. What a love for a Savior we have. If you're not in Christ this morning, you've heard it very clear. You owe the Lord a debt you'll never be able to repay. For through the gospel, through Christ Jesus dying on a cross, He paid the penalty for you and I to be able to worship Him in spirit and in truth, to have our debt erased and His righteousness credit to our account. If you would just repent of your sins, turn away from living for yourself and turn to Christ as King, and trust in His finished work as the only hope you have for salvation. There's going to be no scale there by how many good works you did versus bad. There's going to be no comparison about how good you were compared to the people around you. There will be simply this. Are you covered in the blood of Christ or are you not? Is your debt full or has it been paid? Those are the two options. So if you know yourself not to have your debt paid, then this morning... You have a great opportunity as the gospel is proclaimed to receive the full payment of life eternal in Christ Jesus. Where once your works would only bring you death, now Christ's work has brought you life. Love to invite you after our service to come down front. I'll be down front this week. Is that right? You, you will be down front this week as well as other deacons in our, our service. But I'll be at the back of the church and I'd love to grab your hand and pray with you and share the gospel in deep, deeper detail with you and lead you to Christ this morning. Whatever the Lord's calling you and your heart to do, respond accordingly.